Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Monday is the deadline to file our taxes, and as we look at what provisions of the tax code apply to our particular situation, top of mind might not be how the code, which is a reflection of social and economic policy decisions, intersects with race. That intersection wasn't top of mind either for Emory University law professor Dorothy Brown when she decided to become a tax lawyer, If anything, she thought going into the field would help her get away from painful experiences of race. But Brown says she's never been more wrong. Race and the tax code. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Dorothy Brown became a tax lawyer to avoid dealing with race. I learned early on, she writes, that people might look at me and see black, but as far as tax law was concerned, the only color that mattered was green. But it soon became clear to Brown that tax law and race were deeply intertwined, that tax policies disadvantaged black Americans while they subsidized their white peers and worsened the racial wealth gap. Her book is The Whiteness of Wealth. Professor Brown, welcome to Forum. Thanks so much for having me. Really glad to have you on. And I do have to ask, when did this need to choose a profession that would help you get away from race really take hold for you? That's such a great question. So I knew from an early age I wanted to be a lawyer. And initially, because my my role model was Thurgood Marshall, initially I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer when I was a little Mm -hmm. girl. But then I grew up in the South Bronx. I dealt with racism regularly. At some point, I decided I want to be a lawyer, but I don't want to have anything to do with civil rights because that's too painful. I have Mm -hmm. to live it. I don't also want to have to practice it. You write about the influence of your mentor, though, Jerome Culp, changing your mind. Can you talk about that (laughs) moment? Yes, yes, yes. So Jerome was a wonderful mentor, and every time I talked with him or interacted with his scholarship, it made me think differently. So one particular day, I took a break from preparing for tax. And I remember it was partnership tax. And I didn't want to have anything to do with partnership tax. So I picked up this article that I knew had nothing to do with tax. And it was about it was about Jerome telling black law professors that they should look for the role of race in whatever law they teach. So I'm reading the article and I'm thinking, well, he can't be talking about me because tax has nothing to do with race. About two pages from the end, there's a question in there that he asks and he says, how do you know there isn't a race and tax issue if you don't look? And I just about fell off my chair. (laughs) And I picked up the phone and I called him and I said, Jerome, 
I'm going to look. I don't know what I'm going to find, but I'm going to look. And he said, go for it. And that's when I discovered the IRS and the Treasury do not publish statistics by race. Wow. Yeah. How was looking. I ever, how was I ever, how was I ever going to do this? <laughs> right. Looking was easier uh, said than done. How did you do it? How did you find the data you needed? I became a detective. So what I would do is I would read reports and research dealing with race, and I would bring my tax eyes to the research. And the first thing I ever, the first thing I ever read that caused me to think about this was a Commission on Civil Rights report on the economic status of Black women. And I'm reading it, and in the report it says, Black wives contribute 41% to household income and white wives contribute 29%. Now to anybody who isn't a tax geek, that doesn't mean anything. Hmm. But to this tax geek, it was like, oh my gosh, married black people are gonna pay higher taxes than married white people. That's what that one statistic told me. So besides the fact that you have this incredible foundation of knowledge um, with regard to why that statistic should really jump out at you. You also have personal experience, right? You saw your own parents reflected in that stat. That's exactly right. So I would do my parents' tax returns like a good daughter. And every April 15th, I would do theirs and I would do mine at the same time. And I made by myself what my parents made combined. And our progressive tax system says, as your income increases, so should your tax bill. Well, my taxes were higher than theirs, but it wasn't that much higher than theirs. And I always got the sense that they were paying too much in taxes. But it wasn't that I was doing anything wrong. Their tax return was pretty simple. But when I saw that statistic, I thought, that's what is happening to my parents. So my parents earned roughly equal amount. So my mother and my father, my mother was a nurse, my father was a plumber, and their incomes were almost identical. And it was because they both worked full time and made income close to each other, our tax laws penalized them. So when I figured this out, it was this eureka moment. That's why my parents are paying too much in taxes. It's not that I was doing anything wrong. It's that basically the law was wrong because it penalizes two wage earners who are married to each other. If my parents had never gotten married, their tax bill would have been less. Hmm. So talk about that a little bit. How did the tax code or how is marriage treated in the tax code now? And what are some of the roots of that? Yeah. So we have a joint return now. And most people think perhaps the joint return was always in our tax laws, but it's not true. In fact, at the very beginning of our progressive income tax system at the turn of the 20th century, everybody filed as an individual. We didn't have anything called the joint return. But in 1927, two white taxpayers, rich white taxpayers from Seattle, Washington, Henry and Charlotte Seaborn, <clears throat> and they were one of the few Americans, so in 1927, only like 5% of Americans paid taxes because our progressive tax system said only the highest income Americans paid taxes. So they were part of the 5% and they didn't like it. So they went with their tax advisors and their tax advisors figured out a way for there to get a tax cut. Henry worked in the paid labor market. Charlotte was a stay-at-home spouse. Under our law, 
Henry would be taxed on 100% of his income and Charlotte would be taxed on none of it because she worked inside the home. But what they decided to do was shift half of his income to her so that each taxpayer, Henry and Charlotte, would pay a lower tax rate. Well, the IRS said, you can't do that. And they went to court all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, you can do that because you live in a community property state. And she legally is entitled to half. Okay, so Henry and Charlotte get a tax cut because they live in a community property state. But if you had a rich white taxpayer who didn't live in a community property state, they didn't get a tax cut. And those people were now really mad <laughs> because they didn't get the tax cut the Seaborns did. And it resulted in 1948, Congress passing the joint return. So all Henry and Charlotte's, no matter where they live, get a tax cut. But parents, but people like my parents with two wage earners, they don't get a tax cut. And for years paid even higher taxes because they were married to each other. Hmm. I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. I want to ask them if they've ever questioned the fairness of the federal tax code or have questions about how the tax code was set up or structured. You can join the conversation by calling 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. So, Professor Brown, what you're describing here is a federal tax code that favors married couples where one partner makes the income or a lot more of the income than another and penalizes right. more couples that have more of an even split. And so how does this intersect with race? That's such a good question because, you know, I'm, I'm describing this and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, and what? So who are the couples that are most likely to have single wage earner and stay-at-home spouses? And who are the couples by race that are more likely to have two equal wage earners? White couples are more likely, like the Seaborns, to have one wage earner in the paid labor market or one wage earner making significantly more than the other wage earner, whereas Black married couples are more likely to have two equal wage earners. And I was able to do this statistical analysis by looking at Census Bureau data, because remember, the IRS doesn't publish any of this, but the Census Bureau has a really good uh, data set. And there are lots of couples across the country, which gives me a really good sense of what the tax return data would actually look like. Hmm. Now, did some of the changes that Congress made or some of the efforts that they made to try to address what I think is the so-called marriage penalty, especially as more white women entered the workforce and started to contribute to their household incomes, did any of that help ultimately overall? Everybody? Yes. So absolutely. What the 2017 Tax Act did was for many couples, it eliminated the marriage penalty so that when you got get married now, you don't have your taxes go up. What it didn't do was give two equal wage earners a tax cut the way single wage earners get a tax cut. What it also didn't do was address the marriage penalties that are that hit households eligible for the earned income tax credit. And what the 2017 Tax Act also didn't do was minimize the 
marriage penalty at the high income levels. And you're like, well, we shouldn't, you know, what are we worried about people at the high income levels? Well, surprise, surprise, you, there's a racial difference even at the high income levels. More high income white married couples still get a marriage bonus and more high income black married couples pay a marriage penalty because the 2017 act didn't help them out. But I totally believe the reason why the Tax Act minimized the marriage penalty was because more and more white married couples started looking like my parents and other black married couples. We're talking about the U.S. tax code and America's racial wealth gap with Emory University law professor Dorothy Brown. Her book is The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And it's out now in paperback. And if you want to join the conversation, you can by calling 866-733-6786, emailing us forum at kqed.org, or posting your thoughts online. I think what's interesting, especially when you're describing couples who are trying to get by, that marriage is promoted as a panacea for poverty, right? It has been for such a long time. But what you're describing really is a system where it isn't. And if you're a low-income wage earner, the penalty, the marriage penalties in the earned income tax credit are still there. The 2017 Act didn't fix it. So if you want to think about ways out of poverty, it's not marriage because your tax bill is likely to go up. And the less money you make, because you'd be more likely to get the earned income tax credit if you make very little money, the less you, it sounds like, benefit from any kind of tax credit, Um, any kind of tax break. I mean, wow, we'll have more. We'll dissect this more after the break. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about tax codes, and we're talking with... Emory University law professor Dorothy Brown, who thought tax law was about math, (laughs) but it soon became clear to Professor Brown that America's tax system was actually worsening the country's racial wealth gap, which it also helped create. And we're learning more about that. And uh, Dorothy Brown, just before the break, we were talking about the marriage, uh, how, how marriage is treated in taxes. And I guess the question now is, what do you think we need to do to change that? How do we fix some of the ways that the way that marriage is treated through our tax code disadvantages black people 
or people with lower incomes who have equal, uh, who contribute equally to a household? I think we should go back to the way things were before the Seaborns mucked it up. We should go back to individual filing. There's this notion in tax law that says if you make a decision for personal reasons, you don't get a tax break. And I can't think of anything more personal than the decision to get married. So there should not be tax consequences associated with that decision. So we should all file as individuals the way we did at the beginning of our progressive tax system. I want to move now to talking about housing, because you also talk a lot in your book, The Whiteness of Wealth, about how the tax code is helping white homeowners and disadvantaging black homeowners. How, first of all, overall? Yes. So first of all, let's talk about the fact that our tax laws have subsidies for homeownership. And the minute we have tax subsidies for homeownership, we know there's going to be a racial difference in who benefits. Because homeownership in America has always been raced. Who could buy property? Who could have an FHA-insured loan? Who could take advantage of the GI Bill benefits after World War II? And they were primarily white Americans. So any tax subsidies for homeownership are going to disproportionately benefit white Americans more than black Americans. But it gets worse. When we compare the treatment of black homeowners with the tax treatment of white homeowners, we see even more differences. And what do I mean by that? Black and white homeowners live in different neighborhoods. White homeowners tend to live in predominantly or all white neighborhoods. Black homeowners tend to live in racially diverse or all black neighborhoods. And those homes have different values. The greatest value is placed on homes in all white neighborhoods. Why is that? Because the majority, like 74% of white Americans are homeowners. They are the majority of home buyers and their preferences are to live in all white or mostly white neighborhoods around very few black Americans. Black American preferences, on the other hand, tend to go towards racial diverse neighborhoods or all black neighborhoods. And there is a tax break when you sell your home at a gain. When you sell your home at a gain, you can get up to half a million dollars of that gain tax-free if you're married and a quarter of a million dollars if you're single. Most Americans' greatest wealth-producing asset is their home. Yes. So white Americans are more likely to sell their home at a tax-free gain. And of course you could say, yeah, but... Dorothy, Black Americans can sell their home at a gain too. That's true, but their gains are going to be less. And Black Americans are more likely to sell their homes for a loss. And I didn't talk about the tax treatment of losses. Well, I'll do that now. When you <laughs> sell your home for a loss, no tax break for you. So Black homeowners have a very different experience in the real estate market and then have a very different experience under the tax law when compared with their white homeowning peers. Yes, basically, white homes or homes in white neighborhoods appreciate at a, at a, are much more likely to appreciate than, say, in black neighborhoods or racially diverse neighborhoods as well, 
you talk about a man named John and his family and their experience buying and selling a home in Atlanta. And I was wondering if you could tell that story because it really illustrates everything you just talked about. Right. So he had a home. He and his wife and children had a home in a racially diverse neighborhood and they sold it and they wound up you know, in foreclosure, selling it for a loss that wasn't deductible. And then they did buy a home in a almost all white neighborhood, which turned out to be a much better financial investment. But that loss, that home that they sold for a loss, they didn't get any tax breaks as a result of that. You also touch on, which often doesn't get talked about, is in terms of the kinds of trade-offs Um, that a buyer like John, who is a Black person, makes by choosing to buy a home in a white neighborhood. Could you just talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So I, you know, I talk to my friends when they think about buying a house, and I I literally ask them about the racial diversity of the neighborhood they're buying in. And I tell Black homeowners that they need to be intentional, right? You can decide to live in an all-Black neighborhood or a racially diverse neighborhood, but recognize you will not get the appreciation you would if you bought in a neighborhood where you were one of the only Black neighbors. If, on the other hand, you want your home to be a good financial investment, then you can buy in the all-white neighborhood, but recognize your neighbors may call the cops on you because they don't think you belong in the neighborhood. Or if you have children, they may be targeted by their teacher or the principal with more discipline for engaging in the same behavior their white peers do. So if you're a Black American, you have a catch-22 If I want my home to build as much wealth as it does for a white taxpayer, then I need to live in an almost all white neighborhood, but I'm gonna deal with racism. And I call that racism triage, where you're gonna have a lot of things thrown at you and you can't fight them all. You have to figure out which one's important that you have to deal with. Whereas if you live around a lot of black people, your neighbors aren't gonna call the cops on you because they know you belong in the neighborhood, but it's not going to be the same financial investment. So I tell Black homeowners, if you're going to make that decision, do not be house poor. Do not take out a home equity loan. Do not do anything that could minimize your ability to build wealth through homeownership in a racially diverse or all-Black neighborhood. Let me go to some calls. And again, listeners, if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number to comment. You can post them on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Let me go to Karen in Oakland. Hi, Karen. Hi. This is a somewhat off-topic question, but I'm curious about the housing allowance that clergy get. Does that, what's that law all about? And it was it intended for these church pastors who pastor these mega churches? Oh, Dorothy Brown, do you have any insights on that? I really don't. Um, I could, without having done any research, I could certainly say your listeners' instincts sound like I would agree with that when this, when the exclusion was put into place, it wasn't designed with mega churches in mind. But since I haven't studied it, I can't really speak on it. Well, Karen, thanks for the call. And let me read this comment from Sue, who writes, income from stocks, capital gains should be taxed much higher than income from wages. Hmm. Okay, so you also get into this 
in your book, The Whiteness yes. of Wealth, in terms of stocks. Can you talk a little bit about how the tax code handles stocks and how that has a racial layer? Yes. So just like we talked about Henry and Charlotte Seaborn as the reason why we have these marriage penalties and marriage bonuses, there's another couple, the Brewsters. Frederick Brewster was so rich hit the Brewsters were the second richest family in America, second only to the Rockefellers. And in 1916, when only 1% of Americans paid taxes, Frederick Brewster was one of those 1%. Rich white guy who doesn't want to pay taxes. So he sells in today's dollars about $10 million of investments. And he makes a profit of $2 million and the tax bill is 400,000. These are all in 2022 dollars, okay? And he doesn't wanna pay. So he makes an argument, well, I don't do this for a living now. I'm just a casual investor, so I shouldn't have to include anything into income. And this time the Supreme Court said you lose. But then he won in Congress because after the Supreme Court said you have to pay taxes, Brewster, Congress said, well, we're gonna let you pay taxes at a lower rate. And thus was born the low preferential rate for income from stock. So a rich white guy didn't want to pay his fair share of taxes and Congress bailed him out with a low rate for income uh, applicable to income from stock. So you get at most 20% taxes on income from stock, whereas with wage income, it can be as high as tax as high as 37%. So your, your listener is exactly right. And there, there is no good reason, certainly no equitable reason, but there's no good reason why we should treat income from stock differently than income from labor. And white Americans are much more likely to own stock than black Americans? Absolutely. At all income levels, even when you look at wealthy black Americans compared to wealthy white Americans, wealthy black Americans are less likely to own stock than their wealthy white peers. So income from stock is like home ownership, a very racialized asset, and our tax code advantages assets that white Americans are more likely to have. And this, of course, has broader implications for gener generational wealth building. Can you talk about that? Yes. Yeah, so when you make a gift or transfer of property to a relative, that is received tax-free. And I can hold my stock and when I die, make a gift to my child. And let's say when I, I bought the stock at 100000 and let's say the stock is worth 500000 And then I die. I don't pay any taxes on it. My child inherits it. And the tax law works in such a way so if the child inherited the $500,000 of stock and sold it tomorrow for $500,000, they would have $500,000 in cash, tax-free. We're talking about the way that race intersects with the tax code, and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. We're talking about it with regard to marriage, housing, assets, and stocks. And let me go to Lisa in Sacramento. Hi, Lisa. Hi. I just want to thank her. She is so on point. I'm giving that book to everybody <laughs> but what I wanted to say was what she mentioned earlier about the white neighborhood versus the, the black. California doesn't have a lot of black people. So when you visit somewhere like Atlanta, you think you have arrived. Yet, I find all of my girlfriends in Atlanta living on the white side of Atlanta for safety. 
And I'm in uh, Sacramento, and there's a huge difference between Roseville versus living in South Sac. You want to be in South Sac where all the people of color are, but yet we're not really homeowners. But yet you go over to Roseville, and that's my perspective, Placer County in general. You're going to deal with a lot of racism. So it's like where you lay your head down to be safe, but where you buy a home, it's, you know, it's difficult. And to go all the way to Atlanta and live in a completely white area for safety and buy in a completely white. They also tell us to take our pictures down in Atlanta, by the way, when they come in to show your home. Oh, absolutely. And that's not just in Atlanta. We've seen <laughs> newspaper reports, Lisa, across the country that if the appraiser comes and sees that it's a black home, pictures of black people, then the appraiser could be appraisal could be off by a hundred thousand dollars or more. And there's this actually there's a lawsuit uh, around this very issue, because what the black homeowner then did was get a white friend to sit in the home when the appraiser came back and suddenly same house appreciates in value because the appraiser sees a white man and therefore values the home more. Well, Lisa, thank you for the call. And well, Bill writes here, your guest talked about it, but can you talk more about the long-term hangover of redlining? It was banned 50 years ago, but that wasn't long ago in terms of, a, in terms of real estate and wealth accumulation. Yeah, that's absolutely true. So, you know, now we have in 1968, the Fair Housing Act, which makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race. But Lisa and I just talked about the stories that we've seen in the newspaper, where even today, if an appraiser thinks it's a black home, they're going to value it less. And there's no reason for that. So we still have racism in the homeownership market. We have the Biden administration and the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development coming out with an initiative to look into this appraisal problem and see what could be done. But we have a hangover, that's a really good way to put it, from the 1950s that's dragged into 2022. Will writes, can you ask your guests about how citizens being responsible for figuring out their own taxes is propped up by lobbyists for TurboTax and other tax prep services? The government should be able to send us pre-prepared tax bills, like a credit card, that we can dispute if we don't agree. And Congress has even tried to pass a simple tax code before, again, foiled by tax service lobbyists. How big of a problem do you think that is that Will is talking about here? Oh, it's a huge problem, and she's right that that we sh it should be simpler. But we we know that lobbying goes on, and it's not just accountants and tax attorneys. The the wealthy like the system complicated so that they can hire people to game it. Most Americans get most of their income from wage income, and wage income comes with tax collected at the source. It comes with a W two form that you get that the IRS gets a copy of. There's no room for evasion. There's no room for argument. Well, this wage income shouldn't be taxed. No, no, it's on your W-2, it's taxed. Whereas the wealthy get their in income from other sources and that they can use loopholes, real or imagined, to reduce their taxable income. So yes, it should be a lot simpler. And honestly, it's not going to be simpler until people get angry at times of the year other than April 15th. Hmm. Well, you're getting a lot of questions here, uh, Professor Brown. Bobby writes, does the tax code treat income from different professions differently? 
Is it true that investment bankers and realtors pay a much lower tax rate than teachers, nurses, house cleaners, and other professions that have a much more diverse workforce? So, so I would say when we talk about private equity or we talk about hedge funds, the tax rate there is much lower than if you work for you know, retail or a teacher. So part of it is teacher salaries come from wages, whereas other workers, if you work for a private equity or hedge fund, other workers have some of their income coming from investments from stock that's going to be taxed at this low preferential rate I talked about earlier. So there's nothing in the code that says teachers pay more, but the reality is, yeah, teachers pay more because all of their income comes from wages. And that's true in any number of professions. And another question, how can we level the playing field when it comes to renters versus homeowners? Yeah, that's the be- you know, that's the best question so far. So rent is not deductible. And why is rent not deductible? Because the tax law says it's a personal family or living expense. Well, why is rent a personal family or living expense, but interest on a home is not. Of course it is. But Congress decided that we're going to treat homeownership better than we're going to treat renters. And, and I haven't done the study, but my guess is if you were to look at the 535 members of Congress and how many of them own a home, you would start to understand why we treat homeownership differently than we do renting. And I've also I've also been asked, well, do you argue that rent should be a deduction, right? Because that's one way to level the playing field, to allow mm-hmm. taxpayers to deduct rent. My problem with that is I think landlords would find a way to just increase rent and that the taxpayer, the renter, would not be able to take full advantage of the tax break. Well, let's talk about then what you think would work after the break. We're talking with... Emory University law professor Dorothy Brown, we're talking about the U.S. tax code and America's racial wealth gap and how it exacerbates America's racial wealth gap. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the U.S. tax code and how it intersects with race and widens America's racial wealth gap with Emory University law professor Dorothy Brown, whose book is The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. So let's talk a little bit more, um, Dorothy Brown, about how we can fix it. What do you think needs to be done to make the system more fair? 
So first of all, with specifically with respect to home ownership, we should stop subsidizing home ownership, period. Home ownership is so flawed and so racist in America based on the behavior of the federal government back in the New Deal that we have never compensated Black Americans for our failure to include them in this home ownership expansion. So the federal government should get out of the business of subsidizing home ownership. And with respect to the tax system generally, it should be simpler, it should be fairer, we should have fewer deductions, we should have fewer exclusions, we should have an expanded tax base, which would allow lower tax rates, and we should tax income from stock the same way as income from labor, so that all Americans, including the richest Americans, paid their fair share. Well, Carrie writes, what are Ms. Brown's opinions on reparations? Also, I'm wondering if Governor Newsom's team working on reparations has consulted with Ms. Brown. She would be invaluable on the team. Well, that's very nice. I would love to talk with them. I believe we will not solve the racial wealth gap without reparations. That's not part of the book. In fact, that's the book I'm working on now. (laughs) But the whiteness of wealth... Um, kind of ended the story before, you know, what do we do next? And if you really want to solve the racial wealth gap, you have to talk about reparations and you have to do them. You have to do more than talk about them. Can you tell the story of your mother when she read the first couple chapters of your book, The Whiteness Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you. So my mother, who has never used what I call the R word, reparations in her life, she read the marriage chapter and she goes, they owe me and Jane's reparations. And I like looked at the phone and I thought, okay, she got it (laughs) because my parents were struggling financially and they paid higher taxes as a result of them being married to each other. And that's just a crime. So Yes, um, my mother, my who's now 91 years old and feisty as ever, my mother says they owe her and my deceased father reparations. Yes, I mean, the extent to which this is something that, that really affected you, and, and you don't say it necessarily so much outright, but you say in your book, my hardworking, home-owning, God-fearing parents who wanted to earn a little bit more to enjoy their lives after raising two daughters, just in that line alone, I I can see that you yourself, as someone who tried to avoid thinking about and having (laughs) to deal with the painful experiences of race, were also so deeply affected by everything that you learned as as you looked at how tax and race interact. Absolutely. And, you know, when I think about it, and I think about, I mean, I was there when my parents were stretching to make ends meet, and how much the extra money that they paid to the IRS would have benefited our family and and how many other families like the Galloways, right? Chris and Greg Galloway, who are, I call the 21st century version of my parents. They are working, they are make, you know, they are working full time, incomes close together, not getting a tax break like people like the Seaborns did. And at one point Greg says, how can we get ahead? And in this system, it's really hard, if not impossible. So does that inform your recommendation for Congress to create a wealth-based refundable tax credit for individual taxpayers? Can you talk a little bit about that, who make a certain amount of money? Yes. So ideally, 
I would argue for, and the book argues for, a reparations tax credit, which would compensate Black Americans for the decades they paid higher taxes. But there's this problem. It's called the Constitution. And the Constitution would find that invalid. But the Constitution says the government can discriminate against taxpayers on the basis of wealth. The only thing the government needs is a good reason. So my second best alternative is something called a wealth tax credit that would be available to taxpayers regardless of wealth as long as they were in a household with below median wealth, which is roughly around $100,000, which is going to disproportionately benefit Black Americans because of the racial wealth gap, but it's going to include Americans of all racial and ethnic backgrounds who were in households with below median wealth. And it would enable taxpayers to get a credit from the government that would offset their taxes owed and if the credit was greater than their taxes, would result in a refund to them. Well, let me go to some more calls. Eldridge and San Leandro. Hi, Eldridge. Hi. Uh, uh, I have a question for the doctor. Uh, am I understanding clearly? Should I file single more so than marriage in order to get a uh, to get a better benefit um okay so first of all if you're married you can't file single <laughs> you have a choice it's either married or married filing separately and for most americans married filing separately gives you an even worse outcome than married filing a joint return so you know i can't give you tax advice for your situation but the typical situation married filing joint gives a better outcome than married filing separately, even though it doesn't give as good an outcome as if you were a single, uh, a stay, a, a single wage earner household. Well, Michael writes, your guest highlights how minorities are negatively impacted by the tax code. Could she also talk about how minorities benefit from the tax code by the earned income tax credit and a much lower tax rate than white people on average pay? Is Michael right? Well, Michael, I think, is misinformed because roughly half of the earned income tax credit claimants are white. So when we want to talk about who's disproportionately benefiting from the earned income tax credit, it's largely white Americans, not black and Hispanic or other Americans of color. But, you know, the point that he's raising is the flip side. You know, uh, if we have a progressive tax system and we have white Americans with higher incomes, well, they're the ones getting disadvantaged because they're paying higher taxes, right, than black Americans whose income is lower. The problem with that is it only sees part of the picture. The real people who are getting advantaged by our tax system are not the white Americans that are paying higher taxes. It's the rich white Americans that are paying little to no taxes. And the rest of us are getting disadvantaged. So it asks the question the wrong way, right? Why is it that billionaires have a lower effective tax rate than the typical teacher? <laughs> so it isn't a, a, a function that the tax code only disadvantages black Americans in, in these discrete areas. It's that the tax code disadvantages Black Americans pretty much throughout uh, the various provisions that were put into place with white Americans in mind. 
I imagine you get this question a lot, uh, but whether or not what you should really be focusing on is the classist nature of our tax code as opposed to... Yes. Tell me how you respond to that. Yes, I get that so much. And when you look at how these stories are covered, the tax reporters, whether it's ProPublica, whether it's New York Times, they only tell the story as a class story and they completely ignore race. You cannot talk about wealth in America without talking about race. And to talk about it from a class perspective presumes rich black people are treated the same way as rich white people. And what my research shows is they are not. Rich black Americans have higher effective tax rates than rich white Americans. If they didn't, it would be a class story. But because they do, it is a race and a class story at the least. And the same is true for accumulated wealth and so on. What you're really yes. getting at, I think, in so many ways is how discrimination broadly, like in employment and so many other things, contributes to making it harder for people to be able to have the means that would make the tax code beneficial to them. Yes, absolutely. And the way the tax laws are written, they are written with white Americans and white Americans and their experiences in mind, in part because the legislators are disproportionately white. And these tax laws date back to the 19, you know, 1913, 1920, 1950. And think about what this country was like in those years. Let's take let's take the tax break for home ownership sales. That dates back to 1951. Why in 1951 did Congress decide we needed to help out homeowners who were selling their homes? Because the defense industry was gearing up and workers had to move from one part of the country to another. And in 1950, as opposed to 1940, we finally had a majority of white Americans owning homes. So If they had to sell and move, they would have a tax bill. And Congress said, no, we want them to be able to sell and move and not have a tax bill. That provision in 1951 was for majority white homeowners. Black Americans weren't, have never been a majority, and they certainly weren't the workers the defense industry was looking after. So we have In 1951, let me remind your listeners, before Brown v. Board of Ed, before the Civil Rights Act of 64, 65, and 68, right, we had America that could legally discriminate against Black Americans. We had separate drinking fountains. Today's tax laws date back to that history. Are we getting any better at understanding the racial impacts of the tax code after President Biden signed that executive order that required data sets collected by the federal government to be disaggregated by race? I don't think we are. I think I've seen, well, the IRS regularly says they don't discriminate on the basis of race, and they have no data to support that. (laughs) Treasury You know, Treasury, I think, engages in some box checking exercises. They've hired a counselor for racial equity. They are putting together a racial advisory committee. But you don't need a committee and you don't need a counselor 
You need to publish statistics based on race and you don't need anybody else to do that. So I think it's kind of a stalling tactic. It's troublesome that the Biden administration hasn't made it clear that they mean what they say. You look at what the Department of Housing and Urban Development has done and you compare it with what the Treasury Department has done and you realize the Department of HUD takes it seriously and the Treasury doesn't. It's troublesome. We're talking with Dorothy A. Brown, author of The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Steve writes, can the professor comment on the Trump tax penalty on high tax and high cost housing states like California and New York? Doesn't this mitigate the trend against lower value homeowners? Are there any plans to change this law? So I think your <clears throat> listener is talking about the cap on salt state and local taxes at $10,000. And what we see is after the 2017 Trump tax cuts, which significantly increased the standard deduction. In English, what that means is if you have a greater standard deduction that applies to you, then you add up all of your expenses in which you are able to get a tax break for whichever number itemized deductions from all your expenses or standard deduction amount, which is a fixed amount, whichever one of those is greater is the one the taxpayer takes to lower their taxable income. After the 2017 tax act, roughly 12% of Americans itemized deductions, the rest take the standard deduction. So it doesn't matter what they pay for anything. They get the standard deduction. What the SALT cap does is limit itemized deductions to the highest income Americans. So I don't have a problem with the SALT cap, <laughs> even though I have friends and relatives who live in New York or California who are subject to it, because the only people itemizing deductions at this point are really high income Americans. Well, I think one of the things that all of this sort of leaves us thinking about. I mean, Ali writes, I find it absurd that the federal government taxes unemployment and disability insurance payments. It's adding insult to sometimes literal injury. There are a lot of right. people who would like to see our tax system, our tax codes change, or to fix the problems that you are talking about with regard to the way that uh, the tax code disadvantages Black Americans and subsidizes essentially white Americans or and exacerbates the racial wealth gap. What can be done to fix those problems? And if somebody is saying, okay, I'm a regular person, I don't know what I can do to change a tax code. Like, what can I do? Well, one is pay attention the next time you hear a discussion about taxes and ask yourself, what's the racial implications of this? So the, so the easy thing is the federal government can publish statistics on race and tax. And as long as the Biden administration exists, then the president could require any subsequent tax bill to have a racial impact analysis. What is this tax law expected to do to the racial wealth gap? The president can do that. You don't need a law passed. So you can write your member of Congress. You can write the president. You can make it clear that we need race and tax data so that we can figure out what's going on. And what is your advice to black taxpayers who you've pointed out, of course, of course, multiple times that in many ways, by dutifully paying their taxes, they are financing a system that disadvantages them, that that maintains, yes, yes the status quo. 
that that first of all, they like other taxpayers should be pushing for change and pushing for the the tax statistics. But understanding you're going to be a defensive player in this system. So if you do work for an employer, for example, that has retirement accounts available, do everything you can to participate, do everything you can to max out, do everything you can to set up a college savings account for your child, do do everything you can um, buying a house in a racially diverse neighborhood, but making sure you you diversify, right? Don't put all your eggs in that homeownership basket. Black Americans are trying to build wealth in a system designed for white wealth and not black wealth. So we have to work twice as hard and be twice as good to get a fraction of what our white peers get. It's unfair and until it changes, that unfortunately is our reality. Are you seeing changes? Are you optimistic things will change? Are you seeing movement? You know, it depends on the day. (laughs) And, you know, I think we are at a moment where if more people push this administration, we will make progress. But we cannot rest on our laurels and we can't assume that just because the president signed a racial equity order, Treasury is going to get it together. It isn't. It isn't without our eyes being peeled on them and demanding accountability. The book is The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. And it's by Emory University law professor Dorothy A. Brown. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. And my thanks to Dan Zoll for producing today's segment. Forum is also produced by Judy Campbell, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, Grace One, Caroline Smith, and Cesar Saldana. Susan Britton is the lead producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, and Brendan Willard. Our interns are Jennifer Eng and Paul C. Kelly Campos. Our executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay. Our chief content officer is Holly Kernan, and forum senior producer is Susan Davis. Have a great weekend. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way, from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. 
We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.